This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. So we are studying the Gospel of Mark together this semester, and uh, tonight we are going to look at Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Um, So this is God's word for us tonight. It is trustworthy and true, and he gives it to us in love. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, to the disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd... They took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Have you still, have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So tonight we're going to talk about fear. Um, Sigmund Sigmund Freud, who was uh, a brilliant and public atheist. In the late 1920s, he wrote two books, one called The Future of an Illusion and the second, Civilization and Its Discontents. And the common thread that ran through these books and many of the atheists of his time was this idea that as humans, we no longer need God or the idea of God to account for the beginning of the world and to account for the beginning of humans. Because now we know, they taught, um, we know that the universe began... uh, with the Big Bang and that humans evolved from lower life forms. But this account of creation, this account of why anything exists at all, why we exist, left a question for these atheists. Since they had proven to themselves that there is no God, they had this question. Why is it then that everywhere on this planet, throughout all time, people practice religion? Why is it that all humans are religious creatures? If there is no God, then why religion? And why so much religion? And these atheistic philosophers all gave the same answer. All of them arrived at the same conclusion. They said religious, religion was invented by people as a crutch. Maybe you've heard this. Religion exists to help us cope with all of the scary things that we experience in the world. Religion exists because of fear. And here's what Freud said about this. He said, he said that as human beings, we are frail. We are weak. We are constantly in danger of losing our lives. Death is always present to us. We can get sick and die. We can be mauled by wild animals. We can get killed by hurricanes or earthquakes or fires or other natural disasters. We can die by accident. We are frail. Freud said that nature is hostile to us and is a threat to our survival. And yeah, we can all agree with Freud on this. We see this clearly in this passage that as the disciples experience the power and the chaos of the storm on the Sea of Galilee, they are terrified with the force of nature, this great wind and the crashing waves, they beat against their boat and begin to fill it with water, and they're scared because the storm is threatening their lives. 
And so Freud, and to make sense of why humans worship, why religion exists, he says that we personalize the impersonal. We personalize the impersonal forces of nature and we make them religious. We invent personal gods who live in the thunderstorm, like Thor, or in the hurricane or the earthquake or the sea, like Ariel's dad or Poseidon, or much less cool Aquaman. Sorry, Aquaman fans. Um, See, what we do is, as, as humans, we create sea gods and wind gods and all the rest, and we talk to them and pray to them and offer sacrifice to them. This is Freud's theory as to how religion arose. And he says that monotheism, so believing in one God, was simply an economical approach to all these forces. Having one God lets a person pray um, to just one deity to cope with the reality that all of us are in constant danger of losing our lives. Now, I think there's some truth to Freud's point, but I think his theory breaks down completely when it tries to account for Christianity. Why? Because in all of their inventive creativity, the one thing that humans have never done is invent a God who is more terrifying than the chaotic force they want to tame. And that's what we have in this passage, a God who is more terrifying than the storm. In this short passage, it's just seven verses. Mark uses the adjective great, which is in Greek mega, uses the word mega three times. This is how we're going to go through the passage tonight. We look at the mega storm, the mega calm, and then the mega fear. So first, first the mega storm. So to set context for this, we, um, Jesus has just finished teaching in parables to this very large crowd on the hillside. If you remember from two weeks ago, if you were here, uh, we read about Jesus teaching the parables. And what he did was because the hillside was filled with thousands of people, he stepped into a boat and went out a little ways. And so he was able to project his voice up the hill. And um, where we pick up tonight, it's nighttime. And Jesus says to his disciples, let's go across to the other side of the sea. So they take Jesus, we're told, just as he is. And they make their way out onto the water. And Mark tells us this detail that there are other boats with them. And the boats that they were using at the time, they're um, they bigger than rowboats. They weren't yachts. They were, they were fishing boats. They're like a medium-sized fishing boat. And it's worth noting that um, Mark's gospel is usually is much briefer. Like the, the stories that are told in Mark's gospel um, are, have brevity compared to the ones, the same accounts that are still told in the other gospels. But here we have details that we don't have in the other gospel narratives, which tells us that this is an eyewitness account. Um, that Peter, who was there in the boat, who relayed this to Mark to write this, is telling what he saw when he was in the boat with Jesus. So they set out onto the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee was about 13 miles, or is about 13 miles long, eight miles across, and it's 700 feet below sea level. So if you are on the cliffs on the eastern shore of the sea, um, the view would feel similar to being on the top of Pilot Mountain or on the lookout of Hanging Rock, um, that high up. And because of the geography, the lake was known to get these intense downdrafts, and storms would whip up really quickly on the lake. And so because of this, fishermen would wait until evening until fit, to fish when the, when the waves or the wind calmed down, and they would stay close to the shore. But here Jesus tells them to go across the sea. So they put out, and this mega storm whips up and begins to overwhelm them. So I've never been in a hurricane while in a boat. I don't ever want to be in a hurricane while in a boat. But Mark's language here captures for us the terror of this experience. He says the boat was already filling up. 
So the disciples are trying to sail across this huge lake. The boat is being tossed around like a children's bath toy, filling with water as it's pummeled by the sea. And when they look for Jesus in the midst of their fear, they find that he's asleep in the back of the boat on a pillow. Isn't this how life often feels? Like the sea is churning into a chaotic force that is threatening to drown you, and it feels like God is asleep. The sea, for Jews, symbolized the dark powers of evil that always threatened God's creation, always threatened his people and his plan. And the sea, in, in, in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament and other places, the sea is where monsters came from. So it's this dark, chaotic force that is whipped up by the wind and thrown into the disciples' boat, threatening to drown them. So what is this in your life right now? What darkness is churning into a chaotic force that is threatening to drown you? I think if you ask most people at Wake right now how they're doing, they'd say fine. Um, And I've heard it said that fine is an acronym for freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. So I think we're all doing fine, right? We're all fine. So another way of asking the question, what is freaking you out? What is making you feel insecure? What is, where are your neuroses revealing themselves? How are your emotions raging like an anxious sea that you can't control? I spoke with one of you this week who said that you've had a song playing through your head on repeat recently, but it's playing at three times speed. So you're just hearing the chorus of this song. That's not a fast song, but hearing it over and over again, like the chipmunks, like super sped up and just really, oh, oh, that's how I'm doing. That's how I'm doing. It's just going whipped up in anxiety. So what is the chaos for you? What's the chaos for you? Um, maybe it's your family back home, or maybe there's drama in your friend group, or maybe it's your calculus class, or accounting, or your anxiety or the way you beat yourself up over and over again for the things that you don't like about yourself and the things that you don't like that you do to yourself. Like what darkness is churning into a chaotic force and is threatening to drown you? And Jesus is asleep. So why is Jesus asleep? It's because he's exhausted. Um, He just had this marathon day of teaching, and this shows us that Jesus is fully human, like you and me, and he needed a nap. He's asleep because he's exhausted. And he's completely confident in his ability as the son of God. The chaos of the sea doesn't bother him because he's going across that lake. Look at verse 35, the first verse. Going across the lake was Jesus's plan. Jesus led his disciples into this storm. So the disciples wake Jesus up. Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care that we're dying? Jesus wakes up, rebukes the storm, says to the sea, peace be still, and the wind and the sea listen, and then there is this mega calm. The sea is like glass. I think it's worth noting that that Jesus doesn't call on God to quell the storm, but he does it by the power and authority of his own word. Jesus had his way with the sea and the wind without consulting the Father, and in that he is establishing his divine nature. This is what Jesus wants you to see, that just as God spoke creation into existence with the word, Jesus speaks the sea into submission with the word. He is Lord over the sea and Lord over the storm. He's not like Thor who harnesses the storm with the display of power. Jesus exercises his authority with a spoken word. 
And he takes himself out of the role of merely being a miracle worker. And in calming the storm, he is establishing his power and his authority over nature and over the world. So what does this mean for us? This means that whatever your situation may be, Jesus has authority over it. Whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is that is causing you to cry out like the disciples, don't you care that I'm dying? Whatever it is in your life that feels like death, whatever chaos the wind has whipped up in and around you, know that Jesus has power over it. Jesus is in that place with you. He is in the boat with you. He loves you, and he has the power to silence the storm. Jesus calms the storm, and then he turns to his disciples and says, why are you so afraid? What he literally says is, why are you cowards? Why are you cowards? Have you still no faith? Here's what's going on. So the beginning of the passage, Jesus says to the disciples, we're going across the lake. Then Jesus, exhausted, takes a nap. Storm picks up, and the disciples have a choice. The choice is, do we listen to Jesus' voice, who said we're going across the lake, or do we listen to the voice of chaos? Jesus said, we're going across the lake. Can we trust him? Chaos says it's going to kill us. Should we trust it? So there's storms in our lives that just happen. um, And there are storms, and this passage is saying that there are also storms in our lives that Jesus leads us into. Why? Now, why would Jesus lead us into storms? In 1 Peter 4, which is a letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to the persecuted church, And I wonder if he was remembering these events when he wrote this. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, he says, Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar that you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Here's what Peter is saying. God sometimes leads you into storms so that you can learn to trust him. And as you do, you share in Christ's sufferings, which leads to joy and gladness because it's as you trust Jesus in the midst of your storms that he reveals his glory. I want you to imagine with me for a moment what would have happened if the disciples had trusted Jesus, had listened to his voice rather than the voice of the storm. So there they are. They're out in the sea. The wind is whipping the chaos into their boats Jesus is asleep on his pillow, and they're rejoicing. We've got Jesus in our boat, rejoicing. We're making it. We're going across the sea. And do you remember those other boats on the sea? Imagine what that would be like for them, experiencing the same storm, to see the disciples singing and praising God with no fear in the face of the waves because they knew who was in their boat. And I think this is the opportunity in the passage because all of us have storms. All of us will suffer. You cannot control that, but you can control the way that you respond to the suffering in your life. Um, I want to apply this for a minute. Um, Who here has ever been in a situation where you were with a friend or someone you care about and you wanted to comfort them and didn't know how? I think it's all of us. Um, The most recent episode of Ted Lasso, I won't give anything away if you're watching it. Um, So they're all at a funeral and the players on the team are getting off the bus at the funeral and they're saying... Uh, to the owner of the team, sorry for your loss, sorry for your loss, sorry for your loss. Um, And then Coach Nate says, fathers are like the training wheels of a bike. 
of, and then just stops because he realizes he's saying something really awkward in the midst of this. And everyone looks at him like, why are you saying that? And he's like, I'm sorry. I just didn't want to say sorry if you're lost like everyone else. Sorry if you're lost and moves on. I think much of the time when we are confronted with someone else's chaos, with someone else's storm, we feel a lot like Coach Nate. Um, we've got no idea how to offer real comfort to others um, while they're in the midst of their storms. And so we often end up saying really stupid stuff to people that we love um, because we don't know how to give them what they need in the midst of their storms. So how do we do this? How do you give real comfort to others when the wind whips up in the chaos of their lives? 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5, um, Paul says this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Paul is saying that as you receive the comfort of Jesus in the midst of your storms, his comfort will overflow from you to others. Comforted people comfort people. And if you're not being comforted by Jesus and his grace and his mercy at the deepest level of who you are, then you're not going to have anything to offer others. See, your ability, my ability to comfort others is directly correlated to the depth of help that you have let yourself receive from Jesus. If you live life on the surface where everything is fine all the time, that's about as helpful as you'll actually be to others who are in need. But if you let Jesus take you to the depths of the chaos inside and experience the comfort of God in the depths of your own chaos, in the depths of your own storm, then when you're with others in the midst of the storms of their lives, his comfort will overflow from you to them. Real comfort. So then how do you experience the comfort of God in the chaos of your storm? Well, this passage shows us that you need God to reorder your fears. If you're not experiencing the comfort of God deep down in your soul, it's because your fears are disordered. So mega storm, mega calm, and mega fear. Um, the disciples' response to Jesus silencing the storm is mega fear, great fear. And they're terrified because of Jesus' power over nature. The thing that terrified them the most was then just silenced with a word by the guy who was asleep in their boat. Now, often when we read this passage, we think that the takeaway is that Jesus will calm your storms, which it is. That is true. But the passage doesn't end with the disciples being calmed. It ends with them experiencing mega fear. They're filled with great fear. And here's the thing. If, um, let's just say, you're in your dorm and Jesus shows up at your dorm door, um, how do you think you'd respond? You would not say to him, hey, buddy, come on in. Um, you wouldn't get a chance. You would fall flat on your face. When the resurrected Christ in all of his power and glory and holiness appears at the end of time to judge the earth, we are all going to fall on our faces. When Jacob wrestled with God and saw him face to face, he thought he was going to die. When God gave Moses the Ten Commandments at Sinai and God's people simply heard his voice, they thought they were going to die. When Gideon led God's people into battle and saw the angel of the Lord, he said, Oh no, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. I'm going to die. When Isaiah saw the angel of God in his glory and holiness in the temple, he said, Woe is me, I need to die. 
And in the book of Revelation, John tells us that when he sees Jesus in a vision in the blaze of his glory, he fell on his face like he was dead. Jesus was taken into the sea just as he was, and he calmed the storm with a spoken word just as he was, and the disciples were terrified. And this is the reality that all of us in this room need to deal with. This is who Jesus is. He is the all-powerful, awesome God. He is holy. We are not. And he has come to reorder our fears. See, it's only as you fear the right things and the right order that the chaos of the sea will not overwhelm you. In this little book, um, What Does It Mean to Fear the Lord? I actually have eight copies over here that I want to give away to you. If anyone wants to read this, you can come grab one afterwards. Uh, this little book, What Does It Mean to Fear the Lord? by Michael Reeves. This is what he says. He says that fear is a lot like love, and we are really confused right now um, in our culture about both fear and love. Think about how we use the word love. I can say, I love and have a real affection for Taco Mama, which I do. I love and have a real affection for Mary Clark, my my wife, which I do. And I also love and have a real affection for my God. Each is true, but when you hear them together, they sound strange. You know there'd be something terribly wrong if I felt the same way um, about those shrimp tacos as I did about the living God, right? Something's amiss. So how are they different? Well, the three loves differ because of the objects of their love. The objects of the love differ. The, love, the living God is infinitely perfect and overwhelmingly beautiful in every way. And we do not love him rightly if our love is not a trembling, overwhelmed, and fearful love. In a sense, then, the trembling fear of God is a way of speaking about the intensity of our love for God. This phrase, the fear of the Lord, is one that the Bible uses a lot to help us see the sort of love towards God that he requires of us. It shows us that God doesn't want a passionless performance or some vague preference for him. See, to encounter the living God truly means that we cannot contain ourselves. He's not a truth to be intellectually mastered or some sort of spiritual herba mate to chug before you're all nighter. Like, seeing clearly the dazzling beauty and splendor of Jesus causes our hearts to quake with fear. Do you see that this is what Jesus is doing? He's come to reorder your fears. So how does he do this? How does Jesus, by reordering our fears, bring us comfort in the real storms of our lives? So Mark has deliberately laid out this story using language that is parallel, almost identical to the language of the famous Old Testament book of Jonah. So both Jesus and Jonah are in a boat. Both boats were overtaken by a storm, and the descriptions of the storm are almost identical. Both Jonah and Jesus are asleep. In both stories, the sailors woke up the sleeper and said, we're going to die. And in both cases, there is a miraculous divine intervention, and the sea is calmed. And in both stories, the sailors become even more terrified than they were before the sea was calmed. Two almost identical stories, but with one difference. In the midst of one storm, Jonah said to the sailors, there's only one way out of this. If I die, you will live. Throw me overboard. And so they throw him into the sea and the sea is calmed. But this doesn't happen in Mark's story. Or does it? Mark is showing us that the stories aren't actually that different if you stand back and look at them with the rest of the story of Jesus in view. 
See, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, one greater than Jonah is here. And he's talking about himself. And he's saying, I'm the true Jonah. Saying that someday I'm going to calm all the, all the storms. I'm go, storms. I'm going to quiet the chaos. I'm going to destroy destruction and break brokenness and kill death. How? On the cross, Jesus was thrown willingly like Jonah into the ultimate storm, under the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and death. Jesus was thrown into the one storm that can actually sink us, the storm of God's perfect justice, what we owe for our sin. And that storm wasn't calmed until it swept Jesus away. Here's the thing. If the sight of Jesus bowing his head into that ultimate storm for you is burned into the core of who you are, you will never say, God, why don't you care? And if you know that he didn't abandon you in that ultimate storm, what makes you think that he would ever abandon you in the much smaller storms that you're experiencing right now? Friends, one day Jesus will return and he will quiet all of the storms for eternity. And if you let that reality penetrate to the core of your being, you will know he loves you. You will know he cares for you. And then when the waters of the storm of this life are knee deep in your boat, you can sing with joy. God is our refuge, our strength, and our shield, our ever-present help. We will not give fear that the earth gives way, that the mountains fall into the sea. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this story. Um, Thank you that you are the God of all power and that you have come to reorder our fears. Lord, to comfort us with uh, the comfort of God. Lord, I pray that you would help my friends tonight as they're in the midst of exams and midterms and all of the storms that they feel both in the classroom and outside of it. Would you remind them of your kindness and care um, and that you are the God uh, who calms the storm. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.